How are you doing? Welcome to Wednesday's Richie Allen Radio Show, broadcasting live from the heart of Waterford, Waterford City. Oh my God. I've not said that for a long time now. Kill, kill the news bed. Kill the news bed. All right. Waterford City. Uh, Salford City, of course. I'm not on the whiskey, I promise you. I swear to, to God and to his son, Jesus. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. Waterford, what's going on? It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, I've had to pick myself up off the floor there. I don't know what happened there. Hey, listen, Emma Hardy will join the program at this hour to speak with me. She's a lovely lady. She's crowdfunding to sue David Lloyd Leisure for indirect discrimination on the grounds of sex and gender-critical beliefs and breach of contract for mis-selling single-sex facilities. You don't want to miss this. She's really interesting as Emma. She's also been talking about, uh, well, she's alerting parents to asexuality grooming books which are appearing in school libraries. You might have seen this if you follow Emma on Twitter. She'll be on the programme to discuss these matters and more at this hour. Emma is a mum, an ex-teaching assistant, and she is a home educator. Wednesday's programme. And I am, I'm kind of, there, there may very well be a second guest, but I'm not sure. I'm working on it as I speak. I tell you, multitasking, I take it to new levels. But if I don't, what I might do later on is open the phone and open the WhatsApp. Can I ask you to make a note of the WhatsApp number for the programme? If you have done it before, well and good, thank you. If you haven't, the number, I'll tell you what. It would be easier to send you to my Twitter account, which is BBG Richie, all one word, or I C H I E. If you go to BBG Richie, you will see the latest post there is a, a screenshot of the WhatsApp number. So send us a message on WhatsApp. You might have been protesting in Ireland this week. You might want to talk to me about that. There are many things I know you'd like to talk to me about. So the WhatsApp number is up there. So the programme is very fluid today. I don't know how it's going to develop. But one thing I do know is it'll develop. Oh, it'll develop all right. Two and a half minutes now. It is past the hour of five. And I'm Richie Allen. Suella Braverman was the Home Secretary until recently. I thought I'd share this with you without getting too excited about it. And what I mean by that is, we won't dwell too much on it today, but it's interesting. She's written in the Telegraph newspaper today, and she would like future Home Secretaries in the UK to have the power to decide whether or not a planned protest can in fact go ahead. So think about that, my friend, you, dearest of listeners, my my confidant. Listen, think about it. So imagine in the future if, if the Home Secretary, whichever party, was currently you know, in government and they got to make the decision on whether a protest would in fact be allowed to proceed or not. So this probably won't surprise you. Braverman is an arch-Zionist, I think it's fair to say. Braverman has gone all in on Israel and the Israeli government, and she's entitled to do that if it's coming from a genuine place, but I don't think it really is. 
She's talked about in her article today about how she prescribed the Islamist group Hizbut Tahrir and all of that. She has read reports that face coverings might be banned in future protests and a specific offence to stop the desecration of war memorials will be introduced. But she wants the government to go much further in the future. She wants the government to be able to legislate to introduce, wait for it, an amendable list of conduct that constitutes threatening, abusive or insulting behaviour as required under the Public Order Act. An amendable. What she means there is statutory instruments. What she means is these wonderful moving bills. So a bill gets published by the government, it gets debated, it eventually gets through the Commons, it eventually gets through the Lords, and it is given royal assent, it becomes law. But she wants future bills to be amendable without having to go back to Parliament again. Isn't she a wonderful little tyrant, Braverman? Yes, let's pass bills to introduce amendable lists of conduct constituting threatening, abusive or insulting behaviour. In other words, Braverman wants a future that looks like whenever the Home Secretary decides that something is threatening or insulting or abusive, we should be able to ban a protest. She goes on in her article to talk about you know, hundreds of thousands of pro-jihadi people. Of course, this is utter nonsense. While there may very well have been one or two or even a dozen morons when the pro-Palestine and the pro-peace protests took place, the great, great overwhelming majority of people were there simply to say we cannot bear what's happening in Gaza right now. It didn't mean in any way that they condoned whatever happened on October 7th. Of course it didn't. It just meant that they didn't want to see any more murder in Gaza. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. But if you believe Braverman, hundreds of thousands of anti-British, anti-patriotic people So she's a horrible person. She wants to see the Home Secretaries of the future to possess the power, having the power, to say, let's kill protests whenever we feel like it. The UK media is full today of old Prince Harry, God love him, with his big ginger head in him and his ginger beard. I'm only jealous of me with me baldy head in me and me grey beard. Anyway, so the other day, Harry set off on quite the adventure. He took a 45-minute limo driver from his beautiful home in Bel Air to LAX airport. He then waited around for a bit in first class, uh, the first class lounge that is, before getting on a 10-hour flight to London Heathrow. Now even in first class, that is a bit of a chore. Once landing in London, probably a bit sweaty and a bit uncomfortable and a bit tired, he took a 30-minute helicopter journey to Clarence House. He got off the helicopter, only to be greeted by his old papa, who said, You've got 30 minutes, you ginger bastard. <laughs> Fantastic. So he had his 30 minutes with his father, and then he did the reverse of the journey I just described. But, he, you know. He's gone back to the palm trees in Bel Air. So they're absolutely full of this to media today. I was thinking that Harry's round trip probably added four droughts and five sandstorms to sub-Saharan Africa. The CO2 created alone will kill, will kill approximately 37 people, most of them babies born with cleft palates. Most of them. All right, all right, fair enough.
Now, Lewis Goodall works for LBC Radio. He used to work for Sky News. He gets around. He has a podcast now for LBC. And he had a run-in with Jacob Rees-Mogg, a Tory, and a new member of a new group called Popular Conservatism. We talked about it yesterday, and I went on a, an hour-long ramble explaining what I believe it's really all about. So Jacob Rees-Mogg, who, who also presents a programme nightly for GB News. So Lewis Goodall, LBC, meets Jacob Rees-Mogg. The confrontation is interesting. Let's hear James O'Brien introduce it. He's another LBC radio person, as you know, because we often lampoon him on this programme. Listen very carefully to this. Up next, it's our old friend Jacob Rees-Mogg with our actual friend Lewis Goodall from the News. You um, railed against Davos, man. How much money did you make in the city? That rather is I've a never, oh, That's such a childish question. Well, it's not, it's I've never childish. had anything to do with Davos, and I know that you've become a very left-wing broadcaster, but asking me lefty questions doesn't really get us anywhere. It's, not, it's amazing, <laughs> Rees-Mogg, saying to Lewis Goodall, who at least is not a politician, never has been, and is a reporter for LBC, hilarious that Mogg says to him, you've become a very left-wing broadcaster. Mogg, of course, presents a nightly show for GB News. It's not a matter of left or right, it's it a matter is. of probing your position, I Mr. I never had anything to do with Davos. Uh, no, no, but Davos, but Davos, Davos, I would imagine what you're suggesting by talking about Davos is a if sense a of a man... of internationalism, yes. I'm in favour of the nation-state, which was clear yes. from my speech, if you'd listened. I listened to every word you said, but I, it still seems to me I listened extremely carefully, but it's possible and entirely appropriate that we try and probe some of the intellectual positions. Good, good. I mean, it's not but one of the problems. you seem to be re representing the left wing. Are you doing your bit of due impartiality you, that Ofcom requires Mr. you? Wow. Mog says to... Magna, who broadcasts for GB News, says to Lewis Goodhall, who's asking him questions... Are you doing your due impartiality that Ofcom requires? Which is bollocks. Of course, Mogg, who knows very little about anything, is not really a journalist. He's not really much of anything, really. Only a posh Muppet who um, uh, basically lounges around the benches of the House of Commons and has been doing for years while enriching himself is actually presenting for a right-wing news programme with a nightly programme, is actually bringing up due impartiality with Lewis Goodhall. This is funny. Or are Mr. you here as a left-wing broadcaster? Mr. Rees-Mogg, I know I'm that you're rather... interested in this, because this comes up with GB News, which... This comes up with GB News, says Mogg. Which I broadcast Which, of course, is completely impartial. Mr. Rees-Mogg... It meets the requirements of due impartiality, and well, I'm not according to Ofcom. So just two examples there of what happens when these people encounter proper journalists. And well, I'm not sure now that Lewis Goodall is a proper journalist. That might be a stretch, James, but go on. And two reminders of why they've now had to set up their own television stations, because they dream of a world where broadcast media will look and sound like the Daily Telegraph comment pages currently look. Yeah, but your broadcast media basically sounds and feels like the comment pages of The Guardian, James. So it's kind of tit-for-tat pot calling the kettle black there. You're not much of a journalist either, mate. Let's be honest about it. I'd, I'd, listen, my job is just to warn you what's going to happen next. Well, Brian says his job is to warn you about what's going to happen next. Do you believe that? Do you believe this, Mr. Lockdown? Mr. Austerity? Mr. Keep Children Home, Don't Kill Granny? Mr. Shut Up and Take Your Jabs? He's going to tell you what's going to happen next, apparently. Thankfully, they probably won't be in power. Um, for He's just accused... He's just laughed at and highlighted Lewis Goodhall 
criticising GB News for impartiality. He's, he's, he's stated, O'Brien has, that Lewis Goodall is a real journalist, working for LBC, presumably a real news organisation, and O'Brien says they won't be in power for very long, thankfully. That's really impartial, that is For a it? while. Right, and we'll get a little bit more. But the determination to create a world in which asking a question elicits an ad hominem attack, an accusation of, of political bias from somebody who works for an organisation. Quite amazing that O'Brien is bringing up ad hominem attacks. Oh, poor Lewis asked Mogg a decent question and was on the receiving end of an ad hominem attack. Yes, he was. I heard it too. But Jesus wept, James. What did James O'Brien do? Not just James O'Brien now, but people working for BBC Radio 5 Live, people working uh, for Talk TV. What did they do? In 2020, when people were questioning the need for lockdowns, when people were questioning the safety of the jabs, well, they, they threw all manner of ad hominem attacks at people and insulted them and shouted them down. Hilarious, that. But yeah, Mog is disgusting. I will give James O'Brien that much. Mog is absolutely wretched in every sense of the word. Let's leave that climate change. We've talked about this on this programme to death climate change and EU plans to ramp up the reduction of CO2 across the Eurozone in the coming years. Let's have a listen to Morning Ireland, which is RTE's flagship morning news programme that's radio, television, and the Irish National Broadcaster. Do pay attention to this, please. The European Commission has recommended cutting greenhouse gas emissions by 90% by 2040 compared to 1990, but without references to the role of agriculture and plans to cut per, per, pesticide use excuse me, after big protests by farmers. By 2022, the EU had reduced its emissions by 33% compared to 1990. Sive is with us. She's Senior Climate Advisor to Friends of the Earth Ireland and a lecturer in Energy and Climate Law at TU Dublin. Sive O'Neill, thanks for coming into us. Before we talk about whether these targets can be met, can you put into context the scale of what is being asked here? Yeah, the scale of it, right. A reduction of 90, 95% of CO2 emissions in every sector across the board in the Eurozone. This Friends of the Earth advisor and academic Sive O'Neill. Well, the European Union is already committed to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. That's set down in the European Climate Law, which was adopted in 2021. So if you like, uh, 90% is just another stepping stone on the way to net zero. And none of this should come as any surprise. Uh, the 2021 climate law mandated the Commission to come up with a proposal for 2040 and it also established a European scientific advisory board. So this is the first time an independent group of scientists have recommended the target. It's not something that the Commission has just plucked out of the air and in fact the advisory board recommended a target of between 90 and 95 percent by 2040. So this has been somewhat uh, whittled down by the Commission in its recommendation but it it won't uh, be the basis for any legal changes to the other directives and the climate and energy package until after the European election. So at the moment, this is a non-binding recommendation. Is it possible? Well, it has to be possible. Um, The science is telling us very clearly that um, we have to slash our emissions. The science now is telling us very clearly it's time to rip into the emissions and bring them down at the speed of light. Um, Well before 2030. Well before 2030. 
that's less than six years away, right? And get to net zero, well, you know, before the middle of the century. And developed countries have to take the lead in that. And in fact, the uh, international climate regime, you know, requires countries, including blocks like the EU, uh, to come forward with new proposals by 2025 to ensure that the emission reductions are on track. So next year is going to be really interesting. And next year's COP conference, the United Nations Climate Change Conference next year, I can't remember where it's where it's where it will be held next year but it's going to be fascinating because i believe that it will be next year that we will uh well it the, the veil will will we know you know i know we suspect we know but for many people who don't know the veil will lift off of these plans next year next year is going to be a huge year because next year i think is when they begin to cross the t's and dot the i's and explain exactly what they expect individual people to do in the coming years in order to help fight climate change so at the moment it's all we got to do 95 percent we got to ban the sale of diesel and petrol cars by 2030 and all of that but largely they're not really talking to the individual they're going to. Let's hear a little bit more of this. So legally speaking and scientific speaking, it's absolutely necessary that uh, we follow this trajectory to net zero. And the Commission, when it was making its recommendation yesterday, also produced an impact assessment, which was looking at the feasibility, the economic benefits of early action. And they concluded that the higher target that they considered was actually more cost effective than the less ambitious targets. So what they're saying is the European Union is saying to individual nation states or member states, it is saying, right, we're going to level with you, uh, the cost of achieving these net zero targets is probably going to feel like it'll bankrupt you. You, as the governments of these European Union countries, you're going to feel like this is impossible, that it is going to bankrupt the country. But don't worry about it. Believe us when we tell you that the offshoot industries, the green industries that will will, will sprout up Will 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 grow from what we're asking you to do. Will ultimately ultimately be worth it in the long run, but they won't be. In the opinion of this bold Irishman, they will not be. Bankruptcy is what this is kind of about as well. They're going to bankrupt countries into taking these suicidal measures with promises that it's okay because it's all going to come out okay in the end. But it won't do. Listen to a bit more. Front-loading the emission reductions and the costs actually saves money in the long term and makes it easier. See, see, front-loading the emissions now and the costs of it, so taking a massive financial stress, it's going to be okay in the long run. To achieve the target. Yes, but as you said, these are recommendations. There are elections to come. Uh, There are political realities here. Is it likely that these targets are going to be agreed? This is very good now. This guy, the presenter, he's saying, right, so we've got European Union elections coming up. We've also got national elections, you know, coming up around Europe and in France. And it is believed that right-wing, so-called right-wing parties are on the march. And many of these right-wing parties are anti-net zero, maybe, and do not support the green agenda. So is this feasible? Her answer is actually chilling. You need to listen carefully. Well, so what happens next is that after the European uh, Parliament elections, a new commission will be appointed and the commission um, will then work with the Parliament and the Council of Ministers to draw up the detailed legislative proposals. But this is actually part of the policy planning cycle in the European Union anyway. 
policy planning cycle. Uh, it's been doing this for the last 15 years uh, in response to previous targets. Uh, so it, it actually one of the things the commissions... She's just said they've been making this stuff um, virtually unassailable over the last 15 years. She's going to explain how it doesn't matter if you get a few dozen or even a few hundred MEPs coming into the European Union who might be totally opposed to the climate agenda, it won't matter a damn. Impact assessment report found was that even implementing and continuing on the same pathway, the existing regulations and directives would achieve an 88% reduction in emissions by 2040. So what we need is really just ramp up existing efforts, rolling out uh, more renewable energy faster, decarbonising heating and transport. And all of these things are already in train. So we're just accelerating the ambition. If agreed, would Ireland have to change its plan? Um, well, Ireland is subject to EU laws. Of course it is. So it will require, there will be a new effort sharing agreement which will set new targets for 2040 and they will be legally binding on Ireland just as the current ones are. Of course, and she finishes with... Um, So none of this is coming as as any surprise. There are no sectors that are going to get an easy pass and just because... No easy passes for anybody. Agriculture doesn't get specifically mentioned. doesn't really mean anything because they're economy-wide cuts and they apply to all greenhouse gas emissions. So agriculture will absolutely be included in this. Listen to this now because Ursula von der Leyen said yesterday, didn't she, um, the, the, the top dog at the European Union, she said, well, we've listened to the farmers' protests and we're going to ease back on the farmers. You know, we're not going to put so much stress on the farmers, said von der Leyen yesterday. She was lying. Listen again. Listen again. Mentioned doesn't really mean anything because they're economy-wide cuts and they apply to all greenhouse gas emissions. So agriculture will absolutely be included in this. Yeah. What happens if these targets aren't met? Wait for it. Well, what happens if they're not met is that we bear the brunt of accelerating climate change. We already have something in the order of 60,000 deaths uh, annually. As a This is bullshit. This is contested, by the way. There's no evidence to support this claim that 60,000 people are dying because of climate change. Wait for it. Obviously, climate's change, but because of man-made climate change. The result of heat stress in the European Union. Heat stress in the European Union. And an unbelievable figure of 196,000 potential uh, deaths from... An unbelievable figure of 190,000 potential deaths from... From air pollution. From air pollution, which has got nothing to do with climate change. The benefits of early action in terms of eliminating the burden of... I'll stop, I'll stop, because you're reaching for the noose. You're already making a noose, (laughs) so I'll stop. It feels, to me, anyway, nothing is going to stop this. So, yeah, let's leave that there. Sive O'Neill, Friends of the Earth, Ireland. Yeah, all right. What will I talk to you about now? I was going to do Lindsay, but I won't. Lindsay Smith, Newcastle supporter, lesbian lady, was told she couldn't go and watch Newcastle anymore because of her opinions on gender ideology and trans ideology. She's been speaking to the media. I have the clip, but I don't have time. So I want to move on to this. Um, Esther Joy was in the comments today for Prime Minister's Questions. And this is relevant to what we will be speaking, what what Emma Hardy and myself will be speaking about in a few minutes' time. So Esther Joy, I think seems she comes across as an absolutely lovely lady. Um, Esther's daughter, Brianna, and I, 
you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Brianna was a boy who identified as a girl and dressed as a girl and lived as a girl and was doing no harm to anybody and then was stabbed to death by two teenagers and they're in prison now for life. They'll be in jail till they're 40. It must be horrendous. I can't think of anything worse for a parent, for a child to die in any way, but to die under those circumstances. And uh, a terrible thing to happen to that kid, Brianna. Esther has been genuinely um, beautiful, I think. I've seen a couple of interviews with Esther where she genuinely expressed compassion and feeling for the parents of the two kids who did it. And she meant it. I mean, you could tell she meant it. And um, she was in Westminster today, Esther, because she wants to, she wants politicians to look at trying to restrict not so much teenagers using social media, but using the dark web, which I've, I've, I've tried to access the dark web myself previously, not because of any fetishes or because of any strange obsessions that I might have, but as a journalist, what is the dark web? I've asked Hayden, and Hayden tells me, you know, it's websites and people who run websites that are very, very, very difficult for people in authority to either monitor or to take down. And anyway, on some of these sites operating on the dark web, you'll see some very extreme content. And it is believed that the young woman... I can't remember her name already. I've lost this girl's name. The girl who stabbed Brianna to death along with the boy. Their names escaped me. They were apparently watching some very grim, or she was watching some very grim content online. Anyway, Esther Joy, Brianna's mum, was in the House of Commons today to say, look, can we do anything about that? And she was asked if she wanted to sit in the gallery and observe Prime Minister's questions. So she was witness to this exchange. Rishi Sunak was in the middle of sniping, that's the Prime Minister, as the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, we are bringing the waiting list down for the longest waiters. We're making progress. But it's a bit rich, Mr Speaker, to hear about promises from someone who's broken every single promise he was elected on. I mean, I think I counted almost 30 in the last year. Pensions, planning, peerages, public sector pay, tuition fees, childcare, second referendums, defining a woman. Although, although in fairness, that was only 99% of a U-turn. The, the list goes on, but the theme is the same, Mr Speaker. It's empty words, broken promises and absolutely no plan. So he had a go at Keir Starmer for not knowing what a woman is when the mother of the trans uh, child, Brianna Joy, was in the gallery. This is an open goal that Keir Starmer was not going to miss. Stevie Wonder, multiplied by Ray Charles, would have scored this one. Shame, shame on you, shame, shame. Of all, of all the work, of all the weeks to say that. This is wonderful virtue signalling this. When Brianna's mother is in this chamber. She's over there, she's over there, look at her. Shame. Parading as a man of integrity when he's got absolutely no responsibility. Absolutely. Of all... Shame, shame. Do you hear them all screaming shame, Muppets? Yeah, it was probably not advised, it was probably not the best advice comment for Sunak to make. He has all the tact, I suppose, of, I don't know, 
a tactless person. <laughs> I couldn't think of an example on the hoof there. But remember, it was Starmer who did say that 99% of women don't have a penis. It was him who said that. And that's fair game, isn't it? So 1% of women do have uh, penises. I don't know what all this fuss about whether women have a penis or not is. Didn't Ed Davey, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, did he or did he not settle once and for all this question? So a woman can have a penis? Well, quite clearly. There you are. Quite clearly. It's 28 minutes past the hour. Yeah, net zero. Do you remember Baroness Jenny Jones from the Green Party? I'm afraid net zero isn't where we should be going. We should be going to real zero. Real zero. And so we, we've got to take this much more seriously than any any government. Real in- zero. Whole villages of people will need to run into the sea and end their own lives. We need to reach real zero, not net zero. I'm afraid net zero isn't where we should be going. We should be going to real zero. <laughs> oh, they're crazy, these people. C-R-A-Z-Y, crazy. Emma Hardy will be on the programme shortly. Looking forward to meeting Emma. Uh, This is the Richie Allen Show. I'm leaving the second hour open. It might be the case that you and I can have a chat. Do you know what the WhatsApp number for the programme is? You do? You don't? You do? You don't? Let me tell you then. I can't tell you, can I? Can I tell you? I think I can. You know I think I can. Yes, I can. Uh, The WhatsApp number is, if you've got a pen and paper handy, you don't need one. Go to my Twitter page or my Twitter account, which is BBG Richie, R-I-C-H-I-E. The WhatsApp is, if you're inside the UK, 075-659-42270. Is that a 075-659-42270? If you happen to be outside the United Kingdom, it is plus four four seven five six five nine four double two seven zero. I'm Richie Allen. This is Wednesday, the seventh of February, twenty twenty four. It's just wonderful to be with you. So it is. Uh, this, by the way, is the world's most listened to independent news radio show. That's a fact. That's a fact. I'm very proud of that, by the way. I'm proud of you for supporting it. Thank you. Thank you for supporting it. Thank you for keeping it on air. It's just me and you. That's all that's left. Me and you. Keep those comments coming into the programme, richieallen.co.uk or download the app for the programme and send a message straight through to me at studio. Right, it is now 29 minutes to the top of the hour. That's eight and how long. The Richie Allen Show broadcasting live from Salford. Thank you for your messages thus far. Lots of them. I'll read them out a little bit later on. I'm looking forward to speaking with my first guest today. This is very important. It really is. Uh, She's a mum and an ex-teaching assistant. She educates at home, which I'm really interested in, as you know, if you've listened to me in the past. And at the moment, she's crowdfunding to sue David Lloyd Leisure for indirect discrimination on the grounds of sex and gender critical beliefs and breach of contract for mis-selling single sex facilities. This is really topical, of course, and really interesting. She's also been looking into books about asexuality um, going unchecked as part of LGBTQ plus inclusion in school libraries, something I've been following on this programme as well. It's a real pleasure to welcome Emma Hardy to the show. Hello, Emma. Welcome. How are you? Hi, Richie. Good, thank you for having me. No, it's an honour. It should have happened sooner. It's funny that um, late last year I was following you. I was thinking I must ask Emma to come on the programme. And um, as I self-produce and self-edit, it's just one of those blooming things. I didn't get around to it, but I'm so glad you accepted the uh, the offer to come on because it is serious. Tell us about David Lloyd Leisure then and where this began for you. What happened? 
Yeah, okay. So um so I was working at a school and that was where I first encountered um young uh, well boys going into the girls' toilets and as a member of staff there was lots of confusion lots of staff were kind of thinking what what were the rules were we supposed to um confront the, the person or were we supposed lots of people were, were looking the other way um staff were not sure if they could refer to the children as boys and girls and things like that so there's lots of very uncomfortable there was a really uncomfortable feeling um at the school um so after what one thing and another we uh, we left school to home educate as you have you as you've said and we started we were really fortunate we were already members of david lloyd leisure in york and had been for quite a number of years because they're family friendly, because they've got all the facilities for the for the kids. Ours were quite young when we first joined. So we started using it more for, for swimming lessons and tennis and that sort of thing to for, for our eldest. And it was just niggling me at the back of my mind. Um, are they equally confused about toilets and changing rooms here? Surely they can't be. It's a private members club. You know, we're paying top dollar. Um, but uh, I had to ask the question, uh, which was, does our family membership include the prospect of our daughters being naked alongside men in the female changing room? So um, what that did was they the question. Say? And what did they say when you posed this legitimate and pretty serious question, I would have said? It took a long time Richie to get any um, serious answers um, the, the, the frontline staff on the reception desk had to contact head office to get the to get the answers and it, it took several weeks before head office were able to give some so, some sort of answer but even to this day um, we've I've had three letters from head office each one ref says something slightly different from the one before so the first letter refers to single sex changing rooms the second letter refers to gender specific changing rooms and then the third one just kind of throws the, their arms up in the air and admits we have no prescribed expectation for adults with regard to changing room use oh i mean that's pretty that's pretty Definite, isn't it? Very definitive, I should say. In other words, yes, Emma, it might come to pass that your daughter might be getting ready for swimming or might be getting changed to go home and might be confronted by a man who identifies as a woman. I think because my children are the ages that they are, so they've just turned 14 and 12, they are at the cusp of that time where you want to give your children that little bit more independence and freedom and you should be going off with your friends and you should be able to go and meet your friends and go and do stuff together without me being there. Um, and that, that's what's really, you know, obviously if you've got much younger children, you're with them. Um, and you, you know, if you've got much older children, you may be, you may be not so concerned. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, the ages that they are, I, I feel like I'm having to step in more than, then you want to. It's, it's not, I, you know, it's healthy. I love this attitude, Emma. Yeah, you'd like your daughters to say, right, mum, Saturday morning, there's a class on at David Lloyd, so we're heading off to it. No problem, says you. Yeah. I'll drop you off yeah. or you'll get a bus. Safe in the knowledge yeah, that yeah. 
they'll be looked after there and that they won't yeah. be confronted by something as ridiculous as a man walking in to get changed alongside them. So, so I think it's completely leg- leg- legitimate, the, the, the point you're making. Can I ask you about how did, how did they feel about this? Because they're, you know, obviously 12 and 14, they're intelligent, they know what's going on, they're hearing these yeah. things being discussed. Did they communicate their own opinions on these issues? So my eldest is, she's, she's really quite, um, she's, she's enjoying it really. She's enjoying learning about what, what I'm trying to do and why I'm doing it and why it's important. So she's, she's fully on board. She was really glad to be home educated. She couldn't wait. Um, but my youngest daughter is different and she, she was enjoying, um, being at secondary school and, um, you know, she's a little bit more of your typical young girl um, and more susceptible to all of this brainwashing, really. Um, it's, you know, so it, it makes me quite angry. You know, she, we've, we've since had to, um, to home educate, which is, you know, which has got masses of benefits about it. But I'm very, I'm very angry that, that you have to home do home education yeah seems to be the only solution to ensure that you cho- you know what your children have been taught and they're not been getting that drip drip feed of messages and ideologies that you that are unhelpful and and quite frankly dangerous now on that um, Emma, on, on, on this this is this is very 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 interesting um, you know that you felt you didn't have any option but to take them out to, to yeah to, to keep them safe from from that sort of indoctrination which yeah. i think it's fair to say it is because these are ideologies these are not scientific things yeah. they're ideologies yeah. now the government recently produced a kind of a draft guidance didn't it for schools which on the face yeah. of it seems to be um, a positive step so they're going to tell schools look you must inform the parents if a child expresses a desire to to change gender or if a child says by the way I'm no longer Michael I'm Mary or I'm no longer Mary I'm Michael or whatever and in the guidance they've also told teachers that teachers shouldn't expect to be punished or to be cancelled or whatever if they Mm. refuse to go along with it I think those were two big takeaways I took was the guidance positive do you think I mean if they see it through do you think the government is on the right track with its approach to instructing schools what to do around gender ideologies and stuff. I mean, it's 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 a step in the right direction. Um, for example, teaching gender ideology in primary schools is not a requirement; it's a choice. So, for for one, in my opinion, it should not be anywhere near primary school children. You can be a boy, a girl, or neither. Um, So by the time they get to secondary school, I saw it firsthand, lots of very confused uh, teenagers, um, lots of very confused staff. So, you know, they've they've fed the ideas in at primary school and then they get to secondary school. And, well, (laughs) lo and behold, there's a a bunch of very confused children. Who who would have thought it? Um, So there's, there's some... Crazy, crazy problem. I mean, the books in the in the school library are LGBTQ plus and inclusive. And our twelve year old daughter um, should just turn twelve that week, 
and had brought home uh, a book called Loveless by the author Alice Oseman, who has masses of uh, young preteen uh, fans because of the Heartstopper series on Netflix. Emma, you've just gone a tiny bit muffled there. I'm guessing you're holding oh, the phone to your shoulder while you're reading. That's no problem. This is good. This is important. What was the name of the book again? Did you say Love Lust? Love Less. Love Less, right? And yeah. and what's what 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 what's contained within this? So in this book, it's all about a young. Well, it's about a a teenager, seventeen, uh, last last year of secondary school and then going on to university and about her um it's a coming of age book that's what they call them so it's basically about getting drunk and having sex at university so this young woman um has has all these sexual encounters or she doesn't because she finds them so disturbing i mean the language in the book i i, I don't really want to say the words on the radio to be quite honest with you um, but it's extremely explicit language and it's in a way that depicts sex as loveless and devoid of a healthy adult relationship. And the whole premises, premise of the book is to suggest that if you're not interested in sex, it's because you've, you're asexual and you are now part of the LGBTQIA+. Wow. So this is a book saying to kids, this is another reality yes this is another so as well as being um male or female or non-binary or queer or or whatever yes. you can now be asexual that's an identity and that might suit you I mean, that's well how many how many how many little 11 and 12 year olds can even would, understand would fall that. into that category it's ridiculous isn't it and that you so the back of the yeah. book sorry go ahead emma we've lost emma have we let's see can we get her back We've lost her momentarily. Let me kill the call and get her back on. Emma Hardy is a mum, home educator, a former teaching assistant. She's taking David Lloyd Leisure to court, um, having been a paid-up member of David Lloyd Leisure for some time. They couldn't guarantee um, that, the, that her daughters would be able to go to the centres and to have a dressing room exclusively for biological females only. And there's a crowdfunding thing. I'll put all of this information on the podcast notes when the podcast goes online a bit later on. Emma, we momentarily lost you there, just as you were I'm talking. So sorry. No, no, it's not your fault. Stop these things. Ha- you know the way it is. Mobile phones, WhatsApp. These things happen. No, so you were saying, um, these these books are eleven and twelve year olds, which is ridiculous. Talking about you know promiscuous sex at university, and you might not be into this because you might be asexual and then you were about to talk about the back of the book and we lost you then just for a second so if you want to pick it up there so really um disturbingly at the back of the book is a list of resources and websites and one of them is a link to a online forum where you can talk to strangers online about your sexuality 11 and 12 year olds yep See, I, I can't get my head around this. I really can't. And I, one of the things, one of the reasons I like your Twitter feed and, and what it is you're trying to do is because you keep um, sensationalism and you keep hyperbole out of it, which I think is brilliant. And that's my approach generally. But I, I don't yeah. have any hair in it. But if I had any hair, 
I'd be tearing it out. Who thinks it's appropriate for an 11 or 12-year-old to go on to a link that they found in a book to talk to somebody about their sexuality? And who would that person be, Emma, at the end of that line or on the other side of that internet call? Every single material and resource in a school has to be risk assessed to a high standard because you're entrusting your child at that school. So obviously they're they're held to a higher standard than, say, the public library, for instance. So what schools are doing is they're outsourcing their, their responsibility to risk assess. They're leaving it to their trusted book suppliers who have a conflict of interest because they profit from selling the books. <laughs> right. I mean, you couldn't write it. No. It's so ludicrous. I mean, even the book suppliers, even the author herself, have a content warning for, for these particular books. They acknowledge that they contain sexual um, content, but the schools haven't done their research. And because it's LGBTQIA plus inclusive, it's got the green light and it's just come on in. What, what, what interests me is the author put a warning on the book, so presumably the author didn't write it, obviously, for 11 and 12-year-olds. The author no. meant for it to be for 17, 18-year-olds who are heading off to that big, great adventure, which is third-level education. You know, so it sounds when reasonable. When you say that, no, she, she, actually, she actually advertises it for 14 plus. Right. And but, the picture on the front of the book... The, the young girl on the on the cover looks no older than my 12-year-old. You can't be the only mum who's saying, hang on a second now, you know, they're 11, 12, 13. They eventually will, of course, have to do biology and they will have to learn about human reproduction. But this is not learning about human reproduction. This is, this is silly and it's beyond silly. In yeah. some cases, it's very harmful. I can only imagine. I said, when I've talked about this on this program before, I've had to be honest and say that when I was 14, 15, 16, I was fairly embarrassed about myself, you know, um, and puberty and adolescence and, you know, kind of growing up. I found it awkward. I was a bit awkward. And this type of thing probably would have finished me, Emma, to be honest. You know, I'm so glad I never had to deal with any of this. You know, yeah. that I could kind of make my own way and figure it out for myself. I don't know how I would have fared if I was in a classroom and this stuff was being discussed openly. I'd have wanted the ground to open up and swallow me. I can only imagine how difficult it is for so many kids being asked to consider these very, very complex and for them, very strange issues, right? I mean, it's, it's absolutely bonkers. And I'm sorry, but the staff... No, it's bonkers. When when I went to the school and confronted them and said, would you like me to read from the chapter entitled W-A-N-K Fantasy? I was told that no, that wouldn't be necessary right now. And they hadn't read the book, yet they went on to defend the material contained in the book without knowing what was in it. Well, so, that's, well that's a safeguarding issue right there. If you're stand, is, isn't it? If you're standing is, over a book and saying this is appropriate and then when questioned about it, you admit that, well, actually, I don't know what's in the book. Well, that's a safeguarding no, issue. But that's it. Because it's got the LGBT and because it's by an award-winning author, it's, um, it's all good. <laughs> I was contacted by a guy a couple of weeks back who wants to come on the programme, but at the moment he's solicitors. 
are saying to him, look, hold off a little bit. Um, he works near Portland Street in Manchester, or at least he did, he's been suspended. And he made some comments. This is the first time now my listeners will have heard this. But he made some comments last year. The Pride Parade went through um, Manchester, which it does every summer. And like me and like you, uh, this guy has absolutely no issue with whatsoever with um, people's sexuality or, or, or anything like that at all. But um, there have been one or two issues at Manchester Pride with some very graphic depictions of sex going on in some of the floats. Now, again, what adults do in their own homes, in the privacy of their own homes, is their own business. Mm -hmm. And I know you'll have gay friends, I have gay friends. I have straight friends who get up to some interesting things, I would imagine, in the privacy of their own homes. That's their own bloody business. Mm -hmm. But um, this gentleman who got in touch with us, um, he happened to stay in a canteen um, area of the place he works on the Monday after this had gone through on the Sunday, that he was disgusted by some of what he'd had to um, witness in Portland Street on the, or near Portland Street, wherever the route was. Um, he's been suspended because somebody complained to him. And the reason I bring this up is, I reckon a lot of educators, a lot of teachers, a lot of assistants, a lot of officials, they might be as aghast as you are. But I bet yeah. you, Emma, there's a lot of concern about what might this mean for my job and my employment prospects if I raise my hand and say, hang on a second, what's going on? Do you feel that yourself, that maybe more people would speak out? But this is an issue you have, you've got to tread very carefully around, right? I mean, ultimately, if you can't think clearly about why you're there, what your role is in a school, you, the, the one thing you're there to do is to safeguard children. That is, that's that's your number one. Everything else is secondary to that. And if you can't understand that, then you're not fit to teach my children, and I will not, I will not allow you to. I will not allow my children to to go to that school. You know, it's a it's a fundamental thing. It's um, it's it's a it's a real down the line black black or white situation. If if you can see, I mean, going back to that book. And even, even if you did have age-appropriate uh, recommendations, you don't know if that 14-year-old girl being molested by her uncle. You don't know if she, if she's, if she's got uh, special educational needs. You don't know. There's so many things that you don't know that could be going on for those children. That to, to allow material into school that is that sexually inappropriate. Is, it's, is unforgivable. It's dangerous. It's, it's so um, the risks are so great, and the benefits. I mean, you've you've seen the, the pages in the book. The quality of the the education is that there is no reason for it to be there other than groom children towards an asexual gender identity. It's, yeah, I've never seen anything like it. I, I didn't do this yet. I should have done it. Um, you're listening to Emma Hardy. You can find out more about horror, a case with David Lloyd clubs. Go to democracy3.org. Now, it is 3, T-H-R-E-E, -E, democracy3.org, and look for Help Emma Sue David Lloyd, because this is important, right? And obviously, the link to that uh, fundraiser will be on the podcast notes a little bit later on. These institutions, not just schools, but leisure centres, anywhere, any public building, 
they should have a safeguarding duty to children, to women. You know, there should be, biological sex is finite. It is irrefutable. And women should be entitled to go uh, to any public building where there might be facilities, whether it be restrooms or changing facilities, and there should be a space for biological females, which cannot be, you know, where men regardless of how they identify, they should not be allowed into these spaces. It is as simple as that. How are you getting on with the home education? With the home education? Oh, I'll just I'll just touch back on that one. Thank you, Richie. I'll just t- touch back on David Lloyd's quickly. So, you know that whole thing about proud to be inclusive? You've, you've heard that banded about. I have. Well, that's the point. Because David Lloyd's are obviously not proud to be inclusive, they haven't told anyone about their policy like, like I say, it took me months to, to get any sort of answers whatsoever. So what I'd really like for them to do is to, to be open and honest and transparent and, and then let their customers decide if that's the right service for them. Because Bannertine gyms do provide privacy and dignity for women and girls in the changing rooms. So I just wanted to get that one in. in no, it's there. important. Yeah, you, you mentioned Bannertine. Yeah, so they're on top of it. They... They absolutely yeah. guarantee biological females a space for biological females. And, yes. the, you know, it doesn't matter what person turns up and says, well, I identify as a woman. It doesn't matter. They will not be accessing those changing rooms. And that's a guarantee from yeah. Bannatine. That's really Perfectly important. lawful and legal. So it can be done. And it's a choice that service providers can make right now. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask about the home educate educating yes. because it, again it comes up quite a bit right? because you made this decision it wasn't something probably maybe you didn't imagine you'd ever do it prior to all of this but all of a sudden yeah. you find yourself saying right girls you're learning from home how did you even begin yeah. uh, emma how do you even start sure. go ahead a lot a lot of people in lockdown will be thinking oh there's something there's somebody against us today there's um are you there, Emma? Are you back? We've lost her momentarily. The call has dropped out. Let's get her back. She was just about to talk about lockdown and uh, and home edu- educating. Let's call her back. Emma is back now. The gods are not smiling on us technically, Emma. I don't know what that is. One of us is dropping out coverage-wise, but thankfully you're back. Sorry about that. My apologies. You You were just about to talk about approaching homeschooling and then you mentioned lockdown this is fascinating go ahead so um obviously you know it was it was thrust upon everybody and you were your expectations were sky high and it was it it was really unpleasant um very stressful um we're not teachers we're we're not uh, familiar with the the syllabus um so yeah it's quite painful so what we actually did is we didn't do any of it uh, we realised quite early on that it was a, a box ticking exercise, and with again with very little educational benefit. My children were only um, primary school age, um, so maybe different for for older children that were more able to carry on, you know, independently with their education. Um, so, so we took learning uh, on board ourselves and took responsibility for that. Um, so, so it was actually a lot of fun for us because we didn't, we weren't. You know, we weren't under the same um, constraints as, as as many others. So we've taken that, um, we've learned from that lesson that there's other ways of learning. There's there's other things to learn, and you don't have to go along with what everybody else is doing. They might not be doing it 
right. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Just because that's what everybody else is doing. So, um, so yeah, so home education has been fantastic and I highly recommend that anybody who is interested in doing home education to look into education otherwise. Education otherwise, you said. We, you, you just went a little bit muffled again there. Education oh, no. otherwise. No, no, it's okay. You're still there. This is good now. <laughs> so, so it's you. We've only got a couple of minutes left in any case. So it's you and your husband. How do yes. the girls feel about it? Tell the truth now, Emma Hardy. How do they feel about it? <laughs> Tell the truth. Um, so, yeah, we work really, really hard with um, making sure that they've got clubs and hobbies. So our eldest is football mad. So she, she goes to football training and football matches. And our youngest is horse mad. So she gets to do lots of horse riding and her auntie has a horse. So she goes and stays with her auntie and, and helps muck out and, and learns about how to keep horses. So they're so getting almost, on really yeah. well. Yeah. They're it's di- not a bad way of, of learning and, you know, doing things that you enjoy and, um, and, and, and learning the guitar and you know just picking up new hobbies the youngest is is now learning to crochet we've made a friend at the local church who comes around and teaches crochet so you know you think outside the box it sounds it sounds great like today we've just been been out for a nice dog walk this afternoon so yeah yeah we um yeah we have a lot of fun so far so good well listen more power to you um good luck with the you know the issues with uh, david lloyd and david lloyd clubs I'm going to put all of that information on the podcast notes anyway and continued success with the homeschooling. This is a hugely important issue for parents and for kids and for everybody. So, um, by the way, you can find Emma on Twitter also. She is at Emma Hardy and then it's 196290. So, at Emma Hardy, 196290. But again, I will put a link on the podcast notes. Thanks for your time today, Emma. It was an absolute education. I really appreciate it. Thank you for getting me on three times. You're welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks, Emma. We got there in the end. Really appreciate that. Emma Hardy, live on the line from York. Lots of comment on this. As I said, we'll get to your comments in a moment. Uh, The time is now coming up for one. I've got to have a drop of water, me. Uh, One minute exactly past, excuse me, the hour of five o'clock. That is one minute past the hour of five o'clock. Somebody give me a glass of water. If you suffer from joint pain or inflammation, you have probably heard of the benefits of turmeric. But did you know that the active ingredient is curcumin? NutraHealth 365's Joint Health Supplement is specially formulated to reduce the pain caused by joint inflammation, especially during the cold months. Joint Health contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract piperine, to substantially increase its bioavailability, and thereby reaching your inflamed area faster. If the cold weather is making your symptoms worse and you want relief, go to NutraHealth365.com and see how our joint health supplement may help reduce inflammation and discomfort. That's NutraHealth365.com with free two-day track delivery. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support The Richie Allen Show now at RichieAllen.co.uk Yes, I have lubricated the old vocal cords. RichieAllen.co.uk The app can be downloaded via the App Store for Apple or via Google Play, depending on which device you use. Very good. Is there any takers at all on the dark web? I'm fascinated. When I first heard about the dark web years ago, it was fairly 
unsavoury stuff I was hearing about. Because I know there will be some children listening to this, I'm kind of reluctant even to to uh, get into it. But, you know, stuff, really bad stuff, like crimes, the graphic depiction of crimes, as filmed by those committing the crimes, and all all manner of horrible stuff, um, crimes against children. This was a big deal when they talked about the dark web. They said the dark web was where child abusers could pass materials um, to one another without the authorities being able to catch them and horrible stuff like that. And in fact, when I was asking my learned friends about the dark web, you know, my my mates who, um, let me just get rid of that, my mates who um, know more about the internet and know more about websites than I do, and I was asking them about it, even even like when I think back I was kind of reluctant to even go looking because I used to think to myself if you go looking to see what's going on you know because that's all I was interested in was to see what it was being used for and what types of people were were going on there and it occurred to me that you might end up finding your way onto the dark web and then you might find yourself getting accused of going looking for material that is unlawful or pretty horrendous so it's not something I, I ever, I ever did. The only thing I do is I use a virtual private network sometimes, but again, it's usually and well, pretty much exclusively to allow me access television in countries where the programs are not are not watchable here in the UK. I used to do it with sport, but that's all I'm admitting right now. I'm, I'm, I'm saying no more on that score. So there you are. Right, um, I will take a tune now in a sec. Um, I I put the WhatsApp number. On the on the Twitter account for the Richie Allen Show, which is BBG Richie or ICHIE. I was hoping to be speaking to somebody from Ireland at this hour, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. I left it open. So I can take a few phone calls, even though I didn't announce this. I know this. Um, WhatsApp is probably the best way to do it. Uh, one of the smartest things to do, no pun intended, is to send me a text message on WhatsApp to tell me you'd like to come on, if there's anything you'd like to tell me today. But again, I didn't set this up properly, so um, I understand. I do plan on reintroducing the phone-ins. We haven't done a phone-in since Christmas. I'm well aware of that. And you have been asking me. You've been beating me up. Ah, go on, Richie, do a phone-in. Yes, of course. I want to do more phone-ins. Partly because it makes it a little bit easier for me. Just a little bit easier, because uh, when I can when I can throw it to you, it makes it that bit uh, easier. In the meantime, you can reach out to me, richieallen.co.uk or via the app. Hello to Paula. Hello, Paula. Richie, the teachers shouldn't be teaching if they cannot adhere to safeguarding rules. But they will uh, teach, she says. By the same token, doctors and nurses shouldn't be knowingly following bad practice bad practices, says Paula, but they did, didn't they? Yes, they did, Paula. I find it absolutely ridiculous and foolish that teachers would be in a position where books are in libraries, in schools, books that are accessible by children, and the teachers wouldn't know exactly what was contained within the pages of those books. I I find it absolutely preposterous. But there you are. Kev says, David Lloyd is part of the Whitbread group, and this is another example of the evils of ESG, says Kev. Uh, Hello to Rich Mortimer. Hello, Rich. I keep forgetting to turn on at four. 
Well, Rich, that's your problem, pal. Uh, I say that now kindly and with feeling. Uh, Nelly says, I don't have any hair, but if I did have hair, I'd be tearing it out, says Nelly. Oh, you're, you're lampooning me. Thank you. Paul is in northeast Scotland who's uh, trying to send an email uh, through the website, but it's asking him to put his email address in when he already did. Listen, the website is going to be overhauled. At the moment, it isn't very trustworthy. Hello to David Bramble, who says the Irish woman promoting the European Union's net zero policies clearly won't accept that cold kills more than heat. These maniacs making me puke, says David. Thank you, David. Do you know what, though, David? I think most of the ones I hear, when it when 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 I grab these audio clips, most of them are genuinely, completely head over heels, um, on board with it. They completely believe it, and that's it. It couldn't work any other way, you know. If you're going to put messengers in the public domain to sell this climate bollocks agenda. They've got to be people who really believe it. It wouldn't work any other way. This is why last year and the year before, I was saying that there's a part of me that feels really sorry for the middle-aged men and women and the students who are gluing themselves to the pavement and gluing themselves to the highway. Genuinely sorry for them because they have been seduced and they've been programmed into believing that the existential crisis of our times is man-made climate change. They believe it. And that makes them dangerous to themselves as much as to anybody else. They believe it, don't they? If you disagree with this, please tell me. Johnny says the old saying that if voting was important, they wouldn't let you do it. Hence, when you put an X in the box on the vote, it's a pencil, not a pen, says Johnny, in his opinion. Hello to Ian, who says, Jimmy O'Brien certainly makes sweet love to that unfortunate microphone. Could he be moonlighting as an ASMR YouTuber too? Very well practised, says Ian. Well, it's incredibly... These guys don't have any sense of irony. Or maybe they do. I mean, the, the LBC guy you've mentioned, let's not give him any more publicity than I've given him. And I've given him plenty, haven't I, over the years. But the guy is very David Brent-esque in his approach. I don't think he's aware of how ridiculous he looks and how ridiculous he sounds. I really don't believe he does. Because you couldn't live it yourself. I mean, if you were, if you were him and you realised, you know, just what it was or what it is you really are, I don't think you could live with that. I certainly couldn't anyway. There's a gag there. You can jump right in with two feet if you want. Andy says, Richie, your guest yesterday said that Tommy Robinson was a racist because of his views on Muslims. My question is this, asks Andy from Aberdeenshire. Is Muslim considered a race or religion? He says, P.S. I have no real interest in Tommy Robinson. Well, the media deliberately blurs the lines between the religion and the ethnicity of the worshipper. There's no doubt about that. Muslim has come to mean, in the minds of some people, it has come to mean an ethnic person, when it isn't. Muslim is obviously a philosophy. Islam is a philosophy, and a convert to Islam is known as a Muslim, but Muslim isn't a race. You're right. You're right. And I hope you realise, and anybody else who might be interested in Tommy Robinson, that um, I 
challenged uh, Tony Gosling yesterday on his view on his views of Tommy Robinson, and I put it to uh, Tony Gosling that maybe Tommy Robinson was sincere in what he was doing, and even if he didn't expose uh, grooming gangs, um, Robinson believes that in the absence of any media coverage of it, like 10 years ago or whatever, that he was doing something virtuous by speaking about it at the time. I did push back against Tony, you know, which is my job. You can't criticise others for not doing that. And then you don't do it um, yourself. I nearly played a U2 song by accident today. In fact, I nearly played it just now. And I just stopped to myself in the nick of time because I was sadly exposed on social media yesterday to a video from The Sphere in Las Vegas. I didn't watch the Grammy Awards because I'm so out of touch now with modern music, even though I'm doing my best, you know, to try and reconnect with modern music by at least listening to it and giving it a chance, you know what I mean? Because I'm acutely aware now that at 49... I can't continually just go to the record player and dig out, you know, the the music I've been listening to my entire life. But I have been making an effort, but I didn't watch the Grammys. But during the Grammys, they either went live to or they played a pre-recorded video of uh, U2 or three members of U2 and a Dutch drummer. And Bono went into this sickening speech about the Sons of David. And the Israelis, God love them, and what happened to them on October 7th. And I didn't think I could hate Bono anymore. And you're listening to a guy now, dearest listener, who followed you two all over Europe, quite literally. All over the UK, quite literally. I loved the band. In the, I came to the band in the late 80s. The, the Joshua Tree opened me up to the band, and then I began to buy the earlier records, The Unforgettable Fire, War, October, and Boy. And I suppose with some misplaced sense of patriotism, I was incredibly proud that these four lads, you know, a couple of them with with Welsh and English families, it must be said, right, but born and brought up in in Bolly O'Hockley. I think The Edge was born in London, wasn't he? In Ealing. But he's an Irishman, is The Edge, Dave Evans. And his, his father, his father Garvin, I think is Welsh. But I would have loved them. Bono's a monster. I'm, I mean, he's a little troll. He's a monster. This, this rant, well, it wasn't a rant. This, you know, please God, let's all come together for Israel, was beyond puke-worthy. And I nearly, I very, very nearly stuck a U2 song on there momentarily. And thank God I didn't. Because I don't think I'll be playing any U2 anymore. Forevermore, I don't think. It was wretched, wasn't it? A number of people have seen this. And uh, he's getting dogs abuse now on social media. Not that I imagine for one minute that Bonio um, will in any way uh, worry about this. But it was dreadful shite, really. Um, no mention of, of the Israeli response to October 7th. Again, there are many problems with the official narrative of... October 7th, and there is, and you've heard me argue with Tony Gosling, you've heard me argue with Kevin Barrett, you know, I do me job, I do me job, Governor. You know, I think Israelis were killed, they were murdered, no doubt about it, on October 7th. Whatever you think about what's gone on there for the last 75, 80 years, and prior to that, what Israel has done 
since October the 7th. And it isn't new. Israel does this every few years. Mows the lawn, murders countless men, women and children. But for not a mention of this from Bonio in Las Vegas, it was pathetic, wasn't it? It was sickening. I'm going to take a tune. When I come back, I'll read more of your comments. And then, uh, I don't know what I'll do then. It's been a mad week for me, this. Um, but every week is mad. Let's hear from Mika. Come on, Mika. I want to talk to you. Grace Kelly from Mika, or Micah, I don't know. Hi, Gronya, who says uh, the word unprecedented is the most overused word since the scamdemic started. I know, gag, says Gronya, every time I hear it. Unprecedented, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I told them, um, I did it on, I used to do a programme called Sunday View, which was basically... A, an hour-long show which went out on Sundays. I think it went out at 11 o'clock to noon, if memory serves. And it was a, it was, it was, it was a funny programme. I'd, I'd look at the Sunday newspapers and while doing that, I would record snippets from the Sunday talk shows and then kind of put it all together for an hour on Sunday. And one particular morning, there was a big U2 story in the news it it wasn't a political story. It had something to do with the with the band, and it might very well have been the time when Paul McGuinness, U2's manager, stepped away from the band, and it, the band was taken over then, or the management of the band was taken over by a guy called Guy Ogiery, who managed Madonna for many years, Live Nation, and all of that. And I told a story. And I haven't told it for a very long time, I suppose, in the interest of, like I said, I left this hour open because I was hoping to get, I'll tell you, I'll share, I'll share it with you. I was hoping to get some comment from some anti-racist groups in Ireland who had indicated they would be interested in coming on. Because you know me, I like a bit of an argument, but I like a friendly argument. And I've, I've interviewed many men and women from Ireland who are very concerned about immigration in the country and what it's doing to the country, economically and socially, and immigration in Ireland and the crazy policies of the Irish government, those policies are having a massive economic and social impact in Ireland. And I've interviewed many a man and many a woman who have come on and have articulately explained why it is they are opposed to the government's immigration policy, okay? So I decided that I'd try and invite on some of these anti-racism groups who spend a lot of their time on social media and some of them spend a lot of their time counter-protesting. So when the people who are protesting the Irish government's immigration policy take to the streets, you'll often get these counter-protests where other Irish people will shout across the street at them and call them racist. And I like a bit of balance. And I've had a lot of people come on talking about why the government blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I've reached out and... Um, I was informed, reliably informed, I was I was promised that there would be a spokesperson from a certain group come on the programme with me second hour today. But uh, it hasn't happened. And uh, But they were all for it, seemingly all for it. I wanted to, I wanted to explore, you know, why is it that you, you feel it appropriate to accuse people from all backgrounds? Because the Irish protesters who are very concerned about the government's policies, they are drawn from 
they're not drawn from anywhere because that implies they are taken. But they come from every background and they are pretty much every generation in Ireland. And I wanted to get the anti-racist people to come on the programme and to discuss why it is they, you know, can't find any ground at all, any middle ground or any common ground with those asking questions about the immigration policy. And where's the evidence of some far-right movement in Ireland. So I just wanted to get into this, and I left uh, the space open because I thought I might be able to do that. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, I'm not going to judge anybody, you know, because I know you'll jump in with two feet and you'll, 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 you know, you'll say maybe these people, these anti-racists, these Antifa people are cowards. They won't debate these things on air. But I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say it. Some of them are so ideologically wrapped up in what it is they're doing, they genuinely believe that people like, even people like me, who I'm open-minded, I like to hear from everybody, they genuinely believe that somebody like me is disgusting and therefore you, you, you must not share a platform with somebody like that. You just must not because that gives oxygen to to the ideas, even though I don't have any ideas. I like to report on on these matters. So it's a bit of a shame. I, I thought we would have an anti-fascist on for a good old debate about what's happening in, in Ireland. But the it hasn't happened. But the Bono thing, which I got into a few years ago, the Bono thing is very interesting. Because people who would have travelled to watch U2 in the 1980s, particularly the mid-1980s, would remember that um, U2 was very much involved in the anti-apartheid movement, what was going on in South Africa. They were very, very involved in anti-war, but from a very genuine position, a genuine point of view. And they railed against the policies of the Ronald Reagan government, particularly his policy in in Iran, and his policies in Central America, El Salvador, and and uh, what's the capital of El Salvador? It's San Salvador, isn't it? I think it is. And and, um, and and yeah, generally the Reagan administration's policies. So this would have been very genuine. And it was kind of interesting. There was a juxtaposition there. There was a kind of a contradiction even, because while U two was doing incredibly well in America, in the eighties. They had no problem whatsoever in going after Republican administrations and their foreign policies and the impact of their foreign policies on pretty much every other country in the world. And I believe this was very sincere and very genuine at the time. And they would have fucked up with lots of people like little Stevie Van Zant, of course, who was a, you know, has been for, for decades a big part of the E Street band Bruce Springsteen. So all of this was genuine. Very genuine. They were involved in a lot of stuff. The anti-poverty um, initiatives in Ireland, anti-drugs was a big thing. They knew heroin users in the north side of Dublin. They knew guys intimately who had been affected by it. So a lot of the activism in the 80s seemed to be coming from a very genuine place. And while this was going on, and they were speaking, what for them was their truce, or at least for Bono, because the lads tended to kind of stay out of it for the most part. While this was happening, 
they were genuinely becoming the biggest rock and roll band since the Beatles, even superseding the Stones and the Who and Zeppelin. And by that, I don't mean their music is better than the music of the Stones and the Who and Zeppelin. Of course, I'm not saying that. And I don't believe that to be true. But they were doing things that none of those bands had achieved. Absolutely colossal world tours. Technological splendours. Things that had never been seen before. Taking live performance to levels that were previously unimaginable. Embracing technology. Bringing an audiovisual experience to concert goers that that was blowing people's minds. Taking tours like the Zoo TV tour to the point where it was, um, you know, declared to be the the ultimate touring experience of all time, a masterpiece, selling albums like Octung Baby and Zuropa, selling tens and tens of millions of records. That's what happened. And it was around about that time in 1991 that they were introduced to Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton was running for the President of the United States. This is a story I'm not going to tell now in the same detail I told it a few years ago. But it is a very interesting story for anybody who wants to know how did Bono become Bono? How did long-haired Bono, the son of Bob, the post office worker, a chancer, basically. Bono was a chancer. You know, somebody with a good voice. You know, a a really good falsetto. Somebody who could write some pretty poetic lyrics. And somebody who was lucky enough to meet a an innovator like like the Edge, a guitar playing innovator, and a couple of other average musicians in Larry and Adam. How did they go? How did he go through those stages of sincere anti-war, anti-imperialism? More importantly, activist. How did he get to the vaccine-pushing Zionist apologist that he is today? And I believe it began during the. Famous, infamous because of the expenditure on it, a Zoo TV tour of the early 1990s. Because when travelling in the United States, no tour had ever received the attention this tour had received. MTV went absolutely batshit crazy about it. You know, this stage that looked like a gigantic television station with towers, with antenna, antennae, antennae, um, you know, landscape, like cityscape architecture. This mad thing. Look at the photographs of it. It looks impressive even today, 30 odd years later. Never, nothing had ever been seen like it. And a guy called George Stephanopoulos, who you must have heard of, because he's had his own news programmes now on CNN and CNBC. Stephanopoulos was basically running Bill Clinton at the time. Clinton was an Arkansas governor. He wanted to become president. He was running for president. He wasn't given much of a chance, really, of, of upstaging George, w, sorry, George H. W. Bush, who was the, was the incumbent. But he was introduced to you 2 and I'm not saying for a minute now, as that you 2 helped Bill Clinton get elected. They didn't. They didn't. But they were part of um, a pop music, rock music, and entertainment kind of backing for Clinton, which certainly didn't do him any harm. But Stephanopoulos was introducing you uh, 2 to Clinton. And what happened was they found they were staying, quite often they were staying in the same hotels. So Clinton was doing... I suppose what Donald Trump is doing now, which is going from city to city, 
organising rallies, trying to get the vote out and convince people they should make him the... Jesus, what was he, 41? Clinton, 42? Was he 40? I can't remember. Whichever it was, make me the 40th, whatever, president of the US. And he was staying in the same hotels as U2. And that's when Clinton began appearing in U2's suite and began having intimate conversations with Bono, which initially disgusted U2's drummer Larry Mullen Jr., who felt that U2 were a rock and roll band in their prime, that had an anti-establishment image and that swanning around with Bill Clinton wasn't going to do the image any good. But they became fast friends. And I argued previously that maybe Clinton groomed Bono in some fashion, maybe. Maybe that's a bit of a stretch, maybe. But he certainly introduced Bono to people like George Soros. He did. He introduced Bono to people like Bill Gates. He did. People who would never have shown up on the radar of you 2 before. And if you think about where that went, that then went into Bono getting involved in campaigns to drop the debt. Wonderful campaigns on the face of it. On the face of it, who could argue with? Well, you know, dictators in third world countries, you know, through their nefarious dealings and activities, have put their countries into almost insurmountable debt. We need to forgive these debts to allow these economies grow, was Bono's cry after he was groomed by Clinton and Hillary Clinton, of course, and Soros and all of these people. But you and I know, because we've done our homework and we've talked about this for years, that was beautiful at the surface level. But as you dug down into it, what the debt forgiveness was really all about was, was giving access to NGOs to these third world countries to get in there in return for debt forgiveness we get access to your resources your real wealth minerals, water and what not, right? And in turn we get to send our people into your government into your health care providers and provide them with medicines and, and of course vaccines that's what happens you see and Bono wasn't the only one who became the face of Drop the Debt. And then he set up these organisations, like one was, was one of these organisations. And all of a sudden he was appearing in the White House. He was turning up at meetings. He was, he was seen at World Economic Forum meetings. He was, even at one stage, and this wasn't a joke by the way, um, he was being seriously considered as a potential president of the World Bank. This little bollocks, right, from the north side of Dublin, who um, formed a rock and roll band with his mates from Mount Temple High School, who did incredibly well for themselves, put on the greatest rock and roll extravaganza that was ever seen, were being compared with the Beatles. I'm not saying the music, if you take the body of U2's music, is as good as the... I'm not saying that. But they were doing things. They were on that level in terms of popularity. And then he went from that into doing what he's done for the last 20 to 25 years. Which he's organised his rock and roll band activities. And you two are no longer a rock and roll band, really. The band became secondary to his crusading. But all of his crusades, sponsored by and pushed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, George Soros's Open Society Foundations and all the rest of it. So that's what he became, Bono. I find it really fascinating. And I, I note that 
I mentioned this a few years ago on the Sunday View programme. Nobody's really picked up on it. I thought maybe somebody would dig into it and maybe write a book about it. Because he is really important, Bono. You know, he's used because of his celebrity. He is a massive rock star. Sure, he looks pretty ridiculous now. And I know you might say, have a look in the mirror, Baldy. Fair enough, right? I, I can take the slings and arrows. I'm actually quite good looking in real life. It's just that I don't take a good photograph. But he looks ridiculous now. I'm joking. He looks ridiculous now. He looks absolutely ridiculous. And his voice is gone. He can't sing for shit. But that doesn't matter. He is still a massive celebrity. Huge. Right, their music is still played. Uh, They are still in the top 250 artists on Spotify. That's ridiculous. When you think of R&B and rap, you think of Drake and all of those artists, they're still up there. Millions of people are playing their music. So this guy's profile, I believe, is he is used, Bono, as the acceptable face around the world of selling open societies, selling vaccines, selling um, identity cards, um, World Health Organization policies, all of this bullshit. That is what he is today, Bono. But when I knew Bono, and I never knew him, I never met him, when I came to love the music of U2, because Octung uh, uh, Baby is one of the greatest albums ever committed to vinyl, ever. Nobody would deny it. Whether you like or loathe U2, it is a absolute masterpiece. One of the greatest albums of all time. It is peerless, in my opinion, for its innovacy, for its innovation. It's a wonderful album. How this, you know, po-faced rock and roll band with their long faces and their black and white album covers all of a sudden embraced what was happening in Manchester and London the baggy music, the Happy Mondays, took all of this stuff, Stone Temple, all, all of this stuff um, in, in, into their sessions for Octung Baby and produced this amazing album. That's the Bono I knew. And the Bono today is, I suppose, just a pretty major asset, I would say, of the, of the Great Reset agenda. Is it fair to say that? Shall I leave that there now? Is that enough of that old preamble? Uh, I think it might be. This is the Richie Allen Show with me, Richie Allen. Um, Nice to be with you. More of your comments when we come back uh, in 40 seconds. If you suffer from joint pain or inflammation, you have probably heard of the benefits of turmeric. But did you know that the active ingredient is curcumin? NutraHealth 365's Joint Health Supplement is specially formulated to reduce the pain caused by joint inflammation, especially during the cold months. Joint Health contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract piperine, to substantially increase its bioavailability, and thereby reaching your inflamed area faster. If the cold weather is making your symptoms worse, and you want relief, Go to NutraHealth365.com and see how our joint health supplement may help reduce inflammation and discomfort. That's NutraHealth365.com with free two-day track delivery. You're listening to your Richie Allen Show on RichieAllen.co.uk. Yeah, where it's at 24 minutes to the top of the hour. It isn't, it's 23 minutes, I think, now to the top of the hour. Um, hi to Perksy. Hello, Perksy. This is great, he says, about Bonehead. Thank you, Perksy. Honest and well-informed. When are you going to do Brucey uh, Springsteen? But he doesn't say Springsteen. Brucey is an honest broker. 
I don't think Bono is an honest broker, but Bruce, he is. Bruce Springsteen hasn't really involved himself in any of that sort of stuff. I know he played at Obama's inauguration. I know he produced a podcast with Barack Obama. I know that. But I think it was fairly innocent on the part of Bruce. I don't think he knows any better. And it's not me being selective now in who I criticise. That's my genuine opinion. Was I properly pissed off when Springsteen's one-man show on Broadway announced that people couldn't buy a ticket unless they were vaxxed? Of course I was pissed off. I was disgusted about it. Of course I was, because it was very raw for every one of us, wasn't it? Because when he was doing this, we were all very concerned about the possibility that green passes would become a reality in Britain and around Europe. I mean, they certainly became a reality in Israel, didn't they? Eh? Those Israelis, eh? And by those Israelis, I mean those Israeli citizens. I mean, I, I still to this day can't believe the Israelis put up with it, the green pass, knowing their history. Anyway, enough of that. So yeah, I was pissed off when Bruce did that. But again, I it's like Dolly Parton. I love the music of Dolly Parton. My, my taste is very eclectic. You know, I love country music, American country. I love American female country singers. I absolutely worship Dolly Parton. I, to, I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm gay. And I've been keeping it a secret for 48 years. 49 years. No, what it is is... I'm not, by the way. What it is is... Um, so, so Dolly promoted the COVID shots. You know, you've got to allow the room. Leave the... Do you think Dolly Parton and Bruce Springsteen are more intelligent than you? The answer is no. Did your mother have a jab? Yeah, she did, Richie. Would she have a booster? Yeah, actually, she probably would, Richie. Do you think Bruce Springsteen is more intelligent than your mother? Probably not. They live in a bubble, these people. They have their arses wiped for them. Not literally, but metaphorically. So it stands to reason that many of these people believe the bullshit they were sold and spun by Fauci during 2020 and 2021. So while I'm pissed off at Bruce, I have this thing, it was David Icke who said it to me. I'd never heard the phrase before. David Icke said to me, somebody had said or done something stupid or foolish. A content creator who had done really good work. And the truthers were piling in on this person. And David Icke refused to pile in, as he's always done to his credit. And David said, you know, that guy's got a bit in the bank, Richie. So what do you mean? He said he's done some good stuff in alerting people to certain agendas. And he might be on the wrong side of this particular issue, but he's got some stuff in the bank. And he's got a, you know, everybody deserves the benefit of the doubt. David Icke said that to me in London, in an apartment we shared with my missus or my missus and I shared with David in the year 2013. And that's how I approach people like Bruce. Bono is different. Bono is evil. <laughs> I don't know if evil is fair, but um, Bono is beyond. It's like the Madonna thing. Look at the show, Rich. It's like Taylor Swift. Did you see that stuff about, Richie, did you see Taylor Swift standing on the cube of Saturn, did you? Oh, Richie, she's a satanic bitch, is Taylor. Richie, did you see the costume she's wearing? It's Freemasonic, Richie. Listen, do you really fucking think that Taylor Swift is a mason? Come on. Maybe Taylor Swift is surrounded by masons. Possibly. I leave my mind wide open to any possibility. I, you know, that's what makes life interesting as a as a presenter-producer. Of course, everything is possible. But I don't believe that Taylor Swift has embraced the occult. 
You know, people would have you believe that Taylor Swift sold her soul to the devil. Hence, she is currently the world's most popular selling performer. Fuck off. I mean, maybe. But I doubt it. Maybe she's surrounded by people. You know? Look, I'm not naive. I, I guess Taylor Swift probably has a pretty big say in stage costumes. She must do. I would say she has. You know, you, you, Grammys tomorrow, Taylor, what are you wearing? Uh, a pair of jeans, a uh, pair of uh, sneakers. And maybe I'll wear a Rolling Stones t-shirt. No, you fucking won't. We've got a, an outfit for you. What do you think of this? I don't know. I'd love to know, you know. But um, Bruce has never gone in. Bruce Springsteen has written pop songs, rock songs, about working class life. And had the decency to admit when he did a one-man show in Broadway, which is available on Netflix, and it is a wonderful thing to watch. He admitted that he got away with it for years because he'd never had any of those experiences himself. (laughs) He'd basically written about working class life as seen through his friends, his neighbours, his sister, you know, his dad. He he, he says basically, you know, I kind of sponged my, 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 my writing came from a life I never really lived which is um, a great thing. So I I don't see Bruce. Bruce is in London in July at Wembley Stadium. Naturally enough, because I didn't see Bruce last year, because it just didn't work out. I didn't want to go to see him in Villa Park. Just didn't fancy Villa Park for whatever reason. And if you're from Birmingham and you're an Aston Villa supporter, I couldn't give a shit. I'm not insulting you. I just didn't fancy Aston Villa Stadium. But I know Wembley because we lived there and I've been to Wembley Stadium many, many, many times. In fact, I saw you 2 there back in 2009 or 2010, I can't remember. As well as cup finals and whatnot. So I don't think Bruce is involved in the Illuminati man. And I'm giving him a pass, right? And I'm giving Dolly a pass. And you can like it or lump it. More of your comments in a moment. I love these little rambles. As they warm the cockles of my heart, so they do. Music from Blues Traveller. This is But Anyway... Some segue that. But anyway, I lied and told her I loved her. She didn't care. But anyway, back in three minutes. Yeah, music from Blues Traveller. That's but anyway. Really interesting message from Julie McAdam. Hi, Julie. Richie, Bono is a total shill sellout. He wouldn't play in Belfast during the Troubles, but he went to Ukraine in the middle of that war. He's been bought out completely which is a shame as an Irishman, says Julie. Thanks, Julie. I totally understand that. Re- regarding the Troubles, again, if you, if you separate Bono into two Bonos, the pre-Bill Clinton, George Stephanopoulos, Bill Gates Bono, and the Bono of the 1980s, I believe the Bono of the 1980s was incredibly sincere when it came to his passion for peace and an end to war. And I think this was demonstrated greatly when you two were on tour in Denver in um, 1987 on the Joshua Tree tour. And I think this was a scene which was in the documentary Rattle and Hum, which accompanied the double album Rattle and Hum. Weren't you two going on stage on the same day that the IRA planted a bomb in Enniskillen, which blew up a Remembrance Day parade where World War I veterans were being honoured? And about a dozen people were killed. Most of them were retirees. And you two had heard about this. And Bono went on stage in Denver. And he went into a proper rant. It wasn't contrived. 
he genuinely was sickened by it. And I'm an Irish Republican, right? Not so much anymore because I, I think I understand how the world really works and it doesn't matter anymore. It used to matter to me, but it doesn't matter to me anymore. Ireland is a member of the European Union. What difference does it make if Ireland is ever reunited? It, it, it makes none whatsoever. But I never supported the IRA as a teenager. I never had any interest in the IRA. I knew one or two kids whose dads were in Sinn Féin and they were good kids and their dads were good kids and I don't think they supported, you know, the murdering of, let's say, non-combatants. I've said before, if you lived in Belfast or Derry or, or Down or any of the counties, the border counties, and you were confronted by the British Army day in, day out, your entire life, I could understand why nationalists would take up arms against the British Army. I totally get that. But blowing up people, like retirees in a parade, this was disgusting. And I had no time for the IRA. And I think he was sincere when he performed this. It's a notorious rant now because I think a death threat was issued against Bono after this back in the um, back in that time of 1987. You know? I think a death threat was a real thing at the time. Some Republicans and some IRA-affiliated people were talking about something that had to be done about him because of what he said in, in Denver. I think at that time, the guy was pretty sincere about it. Um, but, but that's not the Bono of today. But I hear you, you know, going to Ukraine. I know, it's horrendous. Isa says, on Bono or Isa, no one will ever be considered for the presidency of the World Bank unless it is known for sure that person can be easily manipulated. In other words, someone already compromised one way or another, says Isa or Isa. Thank you for that. Jack is in Watford. Hi, Jack. The answer to that, Jack, is not anytime soon, I don't think. Hello to Kev, who says Dolly Parton can possibly be forgiven for demanding that attendees at her concerts needed to be jabbed, but not when she is also invested in Moderna, says Kev. Is that true? Dolly had money in the company Moderna. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that. It's not a good look, Kev, I'll give you that. But again, it doesn't necessarily mean that Dolly knew the jabs were harmful. But um, yeah, you don't want people to be pushing a product on people if that person doing the pushing also has a financial, you know, a vested interest in what's going on, you know. I, I totally concur. So I do. I totally concur. You're listening to Wednesday's Richie Allen Show. Nine minutes now. It is to the top of the hour. I'm rapidly running out of time. I'm trying to log on to my own website so that I can read comments there, but I'm struggling to get on. The website, I think it's come, it's run its course, the current website. It's not going anywhere in the very short term, but in the, in the medium term, it's going to be overhauled. And I will be spending a bit of capital on that. And you'll notice that when it does eventually um, get the revamp it needs. So I would ask you, and I've not done this for a long time, and it isn't because the show doesn't need it. It's because I've never been comfortable with soliciting support for the programme, even though you are the only means of uh, financial support. Um, from time to time, you know, a company like NutraHealth365.com, do check it out, by the way, and I say that sincerely, um, will come on board with me for a while. Other companies do offer money to the programme, but I turn them down because I don't believe in their products. That's a fact, by the way. And um, I don't believe there's any 
ethical there's any there's anything going for the company ethically so I turn down things from time to time others ask me to endorse products if I if I endorse the products they'll give me money I say no but uh, it's exclusively you so please do support it if you go to richieallen.co.uk it says comment live uh, sorry it says support your show support your show where it says support your show there are Patreon and bank details if you've never supported it before please do you know, you are the only means of income for the programme. And I work at the programme around about 70 to 80 hours a week. And that's not a joke, by the way. I'm doing five pre-recorded podcasts, which go out every morning by about 7.30. And I'm doing five live radio shows, which are produced by me, Monday to Thursday. And then the Sunday Morning Melodies, which is also heavily produced. So that's an enormous amount of broadcasting. And I would ask that you support it if you can. As that being said, these are horrendous times financially. I'm well aware of it. Who are you telling? I live in working class Salford, a wonderful place to live, where people are struggling very, very badly at the moment. And I see it every day I leave the house. But if you can, if you have the means to support this programme, you know damn well this programme is completely unique. There is nothing like it anywhere in the world. That isn't a boast. It is a fact. It has reached um, audiences and numbers that no independent show had ever reached before. it. It's incredible, really. Um, always in the top 100. Um, most downloaded podcasts on iTunes. It's ridiculous. You know, beating some of the most well-known presenters in the mainstream media every single day. Look at the charts today. They're compiled daily. We're up again in the top 60. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. That's what the Richie Allen Show is doing. And you're doing it because you're supporting it. So thank you. So keep supporting it. All right? I'm, um, I'm demanding of you that you support the programme, and um, particularly if you listen to it, and particularly if you can afford it. Go to richieallen.co.uk where it says support your show. And I will say it again. I'm not bragging. There is nothing like it. It is beyond comparison, right? That's not boasting. That is a fact. I'm going to go all Donald Trump on, on this show from now on, and I'm going to call it out. It's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, it isn't really. Listen, um, that's it for me. Thanks so much to Emma Hardy for coming on earlier on. I'm going to work damn hard to get some of these Antifa, anti-racist people on the programme for a, for a, for a debate about what constitutes far right and, you know, why people shouldn't be allowed to, to challenge the government's immigration policies in Ireland and here in the UK as well and elsewhere. So that's it. Look, so I'm going to compromise. A number of you have been asking me to play some Bonio. I'm not going to do that. Back in the mid-1990s, you two teamed up with Brian Eno um, to form a group called Passengers, which uh, the group released an album the album was called Original Soundtracks, I think. Something like that, Original Soundtracks. Most of the album was um, pretentious bollocks. But there was one song on it, and it was an amazing song. It was a thing of beauty, something that was beautiful. Uh, the song is entitled Miss Sarajevo. And I reckon, even though it isn't a U2 song, it is um, a supergroup of sorts, I reckon it's one of the best things Bono was involved in. It is Pavarotti singing the libretto later on in the song. Thanks for listening today. Join me tomorrow at 4 o'clock UK time for Thursday's programme. Before that, though, the Papers podcast 
will be online tomorrow. Slán Tamil is the